And Lord, we just pray in the name of Jesus for Holy Spirit anointing and ability, Lord, for him just to be your mouthpiece to us right now. Prepare our hearts to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, good morning. So, brief introduction, as Pastor said, you know, I've written several books and I often teach on the subject of the end times, which is, um, it's kind of a funny subject, sort of a funny sub-segment within all of the things that we can talk about in church, because on one hand, the end times are incredibly important, incredibly central throughout the entire biblical narrative. On the other hand, if you're not careful when it comes to the end times, you you can really get off into some weird stuff. Um, you know, I've gone to conferences and I'm like, is this a Christian conference or like a UFO conference or something? Yeah, I mean, like it just, stuff really gets weird. But besides things like the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast and, and the Great Tribulation and, you know, all of these things, really at the center of it all is the return of Jesus. And there is nothing else that I don't love talking about more than the return of Jesus. I love talking about his first coming. I love the fact that, you know, I love studying the Gospels. I love his sayings. I love working through his parables. Like, I love studying Jesus. But more than anything, what I'm convinced is that the church today needs to recover a proper biblical focus on the coming of the Lord. When you... When you survey the entire story of redemption from the beginning to the end, the overwhelming emphasis and focus and yearning and sort of omega point of longing and expectation and hope is his coming. And what does that mean? Just, well, then we finally actually get to see him with our eyes as opposed to, yes, we get to actually see him. But much more than that, guys, and this is, I love the gospel. This is good news. It's the end of this current wicked, tired, corrupt, failing system, this insanity that is just, you know, this darkness that's sort of creeping over. It's the end of this current wicked age, and it's the establishment of a new government on the earth when the meek will inherit the administration of the world governments. I mean, think about that. Like, the meek will be the politicians <laughs> instead of the, the other guys. The self-serving, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, we're going to take a vote this week on if I should get a raise? I'm in for that. <laughs> Term limits? Heck no. Um, so my hope is that this message will help us to recover a holy biblical focus on the return of Jesus. More than anything, what I want the church to do in these, these days is to recover the Maranatha cry of the early church. Maranatha basically means... The Lord has come, the Lord is coming, and it's a cry, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. There's a reason the Bible calls it our blessed hope, his glorious visible appearing from heaven in blazing fire, that's our blessed hope, that's everything that we're hoping in, it's that. And then I love there's also the statement in Hebrews where it refers to it as the anchor of hope for our souls. And when, you know, there was just all these tornadoes swept the Midwest, etc. I mean, when the world melts down around us, when things that we love fall apart, you know, though everything's melting the, into the sea, so to speak, we have an anchor in the storm. And if we're going to make it through the days ahead, we need to have a firm grasp on the anchor of hope for our souls. 
So start with the first slide. I called the title of this message is Hope for the American Church. It's a word for the American church, and it's from the prophecy of Habakkuk. How many people have spent a lot of time in the prophecy of Habakkuk? One, two, three, four. It's not a super popular book. It's just a little three-chapter, um, one of the minor prophets, but I am absolutely in love with Habakkuk. Oh, so I'm, okay, so I'm going to have to show you my bald spot for half of the sermon. So, <laughs> just kidding. I'm up higher, so I'm good. So, go to the, go to the first slide. Habakkuk the prophet was an intercessor, okay? He was a man of prayer, and he was a nationalist. He was a patriot, let's say that. He lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, okay? The kingdom had been divided. They had already been carried off by the Assyrians. And Habakkuk is down there in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he loved his nation, and he was crying out for revival, and so it's, it's an amazing parallel, I think, to many devout American Christians today. So Habakkuk 1, 1 through 4. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. And so he's, he's lamenting, he's complaining to God. He says, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? He's like, Lord, I've been praying for, you know, I've been interceding for my nation for so long. He says, I cry out to you, violence. Like everywhere I look, there's my people. My nation, it's filled with violence, and yet you don't seem to save. You know, Habakkuk's like, Lord, as in the days of old, pour out your spirit. Let there be a revival. But instead, it's just more violence, more craziness. And I feel like you're not hearing my prayers, Lord. He goes, why do you make me see so much iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? You know, the old Pink Floyd song, every day the paper boy brings more. Like the idea is, this little kid, you know, on his bike every day, he's bringing more bad news. Like, it's depressing. The whole album is about things that make us depressed, ultimately, which is weird that it's like one of the all-time greatest <laughs> platinum albums or whatever. But it used to be little Jimmy on his Huffy. Now you just wake up and open your laptop. Like, if you want to be depressed, just, just look at the news. Like, ugh, like every day. I mean, like, we can relate that. Lord, why do you make me look on so... Like, it's just... It's out of control. Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. The law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. The wicked surround the righteous and justice is continually perverted. Now, that doesn't describe America 100%, but it's probably like 98% of an accurate description of what we're living through. It doesn't matter for what it's worth. I mean, Probably the biggest cry in the earth, in my opinion right now, is for justice. There is a lack of justice in every arena. The wicked, uh, prosper, I mean, you name it. There is a cry throughout the church for justice. Go to the next slide. And now here's one of these funny verses. The Lord responds to Habakkuk. So again, Habakkuk's praying for the nation. Lord, pour out your spirit. And the Lord goes, look out among the nations. Observe, pay attention, behold, you're going to be astonished, Habakkuk. He says, because I'm about to do something in your days that you wouldn't believe it even if you were told. Now, this is one of these funny verses that people will quote in church all the time. Everybody, guess what? I know it's bad, but the Lord says I'm about to do something that you wouldn't even believe if you were told, right? And it's quoted as a very positive thing. It reminds me, I was one time looking at one of these little calendars, you know, it just has like, the date, you know, December, whatever is today, the 12th, 
or is it the 12th? I don't even know what it is. What is it? It is the 12th. Ooh, I, I, was, I was lucky. I don't usually get the date right. And there'll be a little um, scripture verse at the bottom that's supposed to be encouraging. And I looked at one one day. I, I don't even remember where I was. I was. And I looked, and it said, he will perform his will and prosper, Daniel 8, something or other. And I went, that's talking about the Antichrist. Like, they thought this was some great inspirational quote. Like, you know, I'll get up today on December, like, I'm going to perform my will and prosper. And it's talking about the Antichrist prospering in destroying God's people. He says, for a time, he'll, he'll prosper. And so I was like, gosh, you know, like, I guess the prosperity gospel is true. The Antichrist will prosper. So this is one of those verses where, you know, we quote it in a positive sense, but look at the next verse. The Lord goes, okay, I've heard your prayers, Habakkuk. I desire what you desire. I want a holy people that worship me, that are not giving to insanity and violence and wickedness and a lack of justice. And the Lord says, I've heard your prayers, but I'm going to accomplish the end goal. We both want the same end goal. Here's what I'm going to do. The Lord says, behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. The Lord says, I've heard your prayer, your lament for what's happening in your nation. And the Lord says, I'm sending the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people. They march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with the Lord? No, with themselves. Next slide. I'm not going to read all of chapter 1. Their horses are swifter than leopards, keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping, the horsemen come afar, they fly in like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces move forward, they collect captives like sand. It says they are a law unto themselves. They laugh at kings, they heap up rubble, they capture fortresses like they sweep through and they keep moving. It's really bad news. It's really bad news. But why is the Lord doing this? Sometimes... The Lord pours out blessings and revival. Sometimes he sends temporal judgment. Sometimes he chastises those he loves. Now, I'm not saying this is what's coming for the United States. Um, one of the things I didn't really, I should have ended on a more positive note if you were at the barbecue, La, La, uh, barbecue La Palooza last night. If you were there, I should have ended on more of a positive note in terms of like, like I believe the Lord's clear there will be revival in the last days. Joel 2 is clear. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Signs in the heavens. That has not happened yet. It was only partially fulfilled at Pentecost. The Lord will pour out his spirit. I don't know what's coming. I know there's a prayer movement throughout the United States. I know there's been a lot of people crying out for revival. Um, there are a diversity of prayer movements. And I think that's usually a sign that the Lord's going to send revival but ultimately, I don't know how he's going to accomplish the best for us, whether it be chastisement or pouring out his spirit or some kind of a mixture of both. Usually, in reality, that's what it is. It's usually a mixture of temporal judgments with a remnant that wakes up and turns to the Lord. Now, go to the next slide. I'm going to do a little theology real quickly. Um, I call these the, the mother prophecies. So we're going to look at, if we're going to do a survey of the development of messianic prophecy in the scripture, you always have to start, go to the first slide, which is Genesis 3, 15. This is the foundational text for all messianic prophecy. 
So the fall has happened. Sin and death and corruption has entered the human experience. And immediately the Lord declares to the serpent, he says, I'm going to put enmity. Did I? I'm magic. Um, I turned it off with my mind. Um, I'm going to put conflict, enmity between you and the woman, and then between your descendants and her descendants, between your seed and her seed. And it's plural, just like in English, seed can either be plural or singular. And then he introduces out of these two seed lines, the righteous seed line and the wicked seed line, one will come the ultimate seed, which is the Messiah. On the other hand, you have ultimately the Antichrist, which is Satan's human sock puppet. Um, and it's, then it introduces, and it says, he. The singular masculine, he is going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel, you know, kind of hints at the cross, but he is going to crush your skull. And so that's the introduction of the good news. It's in seed form, in kernel form, and it says someone is coming who's going to crush the head of Satan. That's good news. And beyond that, the inference is he's going to undo the effects of the deception that the serpent brought. He's going to restore Eden. Okay, so when Jesus returns, it's the restoration of Eden. Yea, it's the restoration of the glorified kingdom of David mixed together, and you're beginning to get a picture of what the world will look like. It's a beautiful, glorified, Edenic garden kingdom. Okay, so you start out there. That's one of the primary foundational messianic prophecies. And you can follow that through. You can follow this thread throughout the Old Testament because then you'll learn that the seed of Eve is also going to be the seed of Abraham, the seed of Judah, the seed of David. And you can, you know, studies have been done where they trace these prophecies. But these prophecies obviously are talking about a human. In order to be born of Eve and Abraham and David, you've got to be a human. Well, then there's this other thread of prophecy that's often overlooked. And these are prophecies about the second coming of the Lord, the return of Jesus from heaven in blazing glory. And they're oftentimes missed. Theologians will look at them and go, well, this must be talking about the Exodus, but it's using kind of like flamboyant, over-the-top language. I know the Lord didn't literally do these things, but it's just using over-the-top language to describe the Exodus. That's usually what they'll say. So the first one is, next slide, Deuteronomy 33. This is called the blessing of Moses. It's actually um, the last words that Moses spoke before his death. And here's the prophecy that he gave. Verse 3. Next slide. The Lord came from Sinai. Now the word there, the verb, came, is, it's always going to be translated, usually past tense, in all your Bible translations, it's in the Hebrew perfect tense. When something is in the perfect verbal tense, it can be translated past tense, present tense, ongoing, or future tense, just as legitimately. Translators choose tense based on the context of a passage. So they look at this and they go, it's talking about Sinai. It must be talking about the Exodus. So they always translate it past tense. Jesus interprets this as talking about his return. I don't have time to develop that in great detail. But I'm just going to read it as it should be, as a prophecy. The Lord will come from Sinai. So there's a royal procession after he returns, a march from the south, because the return of Jesus is the second or greater exodus. The events of the exodus, which culminated with God coming down on the mountain in fire and smoke and earthquakes and blasting of trumpets, all of that 
is intended within the biblical sort of literary narrative, the way the Lord intended to tell the story, the Exodus was a dress rehearsal for the redemption that's coming. Okay? So the return of Jesus is the greater Exodus. That's the way it's framed in Scripture. So the Lord will come from Sinai. He will dawn on us from Seir is a prominent mountain, modern-day Jordan, to the south of Israel. These are all areas to the south of Israel. And the Lord, like the shining of the sun, is radiating from the south. He will shine forth from Mount Paran. He will come from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. You always see. So when it talks about shining, dawning, that's just coming in glory. God will come from heaven in glory. He's coming from the south, from the midst of 10,000 angels or holy ones. And as, at his right hand, lightning is shooting out. Um, that's very Avengers, very sort of comic book stuff. But, I mean, it's, it's ultimately the judgment of God is being poured out. Go to the next slide. And then further in the song, The Blessing of Moses, it says, there is no one like the God of Jeshurun. Jeshurun's just a pet name for Israel. So it's like there's no one like the God of Israel who rides across the heavens to help you and on the clouds in his majesty. So this is the first time that God is referred to as the cloud rider. And later it's applied to the return of Jesus, who always comes back on the clouds from the midst of 10,000 holy ones in radiant, shining glory, marching to save his people and execute vengeance against his enemies. Jesus comes back as the divine warrior. Revelation 19 says, in righteousness he judges and makes war. Okay? Next slide. So then it ends... It says, how happy are you, O Israel? Like, who in the world can brag the way you can brag, O Israel? You are a people who is saved by the Lord. And then it says, your enemy shall come fawning to you, and you will tread upon their backs. Now, it's using the language of Genesis 3.15. The Messiah, the crushing one, is coming. He's going to crush the head of Satan and Satan's followers. But the people of God, ironically, will actually participate with him in the victory of God over our enemies. This is something that's really never talked about in church. And it's not like we relish violence. It's not like we want to, you know, like we're having a conflict with our neighbor, Betty. It's not like we want to, like, tread on her back, so to speak. But when we look at the human trafficking industry or people becoming rich through the abortion industry and actually spending money to advertise to promote abortion and to encourage people to, you know what I'm saying? Like, you go, here are people who are, exploiting the poor, the weak, the vulnerable. I mean, there are more slaves in the earth right now than in any time in human history. Think of a little, literally, five-year-old girl somewhere in Thailand or something in a cage. And these people come from all over the world and exploit them for their own, and someone's making money off. Like, the time, there, there is a place for the righteous to rejoice in such statements that the wicked will become trod underfoot. So with that as a little bit of a backdrop in terms of what are the, the basic prophecies about the return of Jesus, you have some concerning his first coming. You have others that actually in the Old Testament that vividly describe his second coming. So here's the thing. Here's Habakkuk. He's this intercessor. He's crying out for revival. The Lord says, actually, Habakkuk, I'm bringing the Babylonians. They're going to destroy your nation. And we know the rest of the story because it happened, right? They killed most of the people. They gouged the king's eyes out with a hot iron just after they killed his sons in front of him. They took away the remnant, the, the residue 
um, as exiles like Daniel and Ezekiel, Shadrach, Meshach, and they left a little bit of people in the land, but it was the end of the kingdom. But then the Lord did something is he gave Habakkuk, get this, in chapter 3, he gave Habakkuk the most detailed, glorious vision of the return of Jesus in the entire Old Testament. It's very similar to what the Lord showed Moses here. And in fact, there's many parallels. But he said, Habakkuk, in the natural, in your lifetime, you're not going to see any of those things that you're crying out for. But trust me, in the end, we will get there. And here's how it's going to happen. And he shows him a picture of the ultimate redemption, the return of the Lord, the, the end of, uh, as I said, this wicked age. So go to the next slide. One more. Uh, skip, skip a couple verses here. Skip this one. Go forward. Okay, start right there. So the reason I had that is because when you see it just in Matthew 24, when Jesus says, as lightning comes from the east to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. It shouldn't be translated as lightning because which way does the lightning shoot? From the east to the west? No. I mean, it does what it wants. It can go up, down, left, right, you know. Like, I mean, it can do all of the above at the same time. Jesus is simply citing these Old Testament texts that refer to the coming of God shining like the sun. And it comes from the east. And all he's saying is, he goes, guys, like, if you hear about some messianic movement out in the desert, like we're going to have an insurrectionist movement, we're going to throw off the Romans, here's the, this is the Messiah. Oh, there's, you know, I heard that he's in the inner rooms or he's gathering a group out in the, he goes, don't pay attention to that. He goes, when I come, it's going to be obvious. No one's going to miss it. It's going to be like the rising of the sun. You're not going to be like, hmm, you know, like is this, he's going to come from heaven in blazing glory. So he's citing these Old Testament references. That's the point. Now here's Habakkuk. This is the prayer of Habakkuk, and it's written in the form of a psalm, a congregational song to be sung in the congregation. And very similar to what Moses described, Habakkuk says this, God, again, I'm going to read it in the future tense, will come. Notice here they translate it comes as it's sort of ongoing. But again, it's the same thing, the Hebrew perfect verbal tense. God will come from Timan. Timan is just the south. The Holy One from Mount Paran. Moses mentioned Mount Paran. The Holy One is going to come from the south. Selah. Okay, so you've got the musical terms. His splendor. His splendor. His radiant, shining glory will cover the skies. Will cover the heavens. The earth will be full of his praise. His radiance will be like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hands where his power is hidden. It's like the veil of flesh that the Messiah took on. It's almost like at that moment can't contain the radiant, shining light of the sun, a thousand suns. And it's like lightning is shooting out of his hands. But it's also using the language of executing vengeance against his enemies. Verse 5. Before him, and it uses classic Exodus language before him. So here is Jesus on the ground, the glorified, resurrected king. He's marching from the south, this holy procession. Before him goes pestilence. Plague goes after him. In Psalm 68, it's so beautiful. It says, the singers go before him. 
The worship leaders are going before him. And then it says, and the maidens banging tambourines are in the back. I don't know why that one always cracks me up. Because like hippies in the back. They're they're back there with the tambourines. But the singers, (laughs) the singers are in the front. Um, He stood, he surveyed the earth. He looked, he started. It's just kind of this incredibly like almost casual picture. Like this Jewish God man is coming back to engage in a hostile takeover of the entire planet. The nations are trembling and melting, and he's just surveying the earth. Um, he's just mission accomplished. You know, no, it's just like kind of like no problem. You know, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. Go to the next slide. In indignation, you will march through the earth. In anger, you will trample the nations. Compare this to Psalm 110, one of the classic messianic prophecies. It talks about him killing kings on the day of his wrath, heaping up bodies. You know, like it's a very similar picture. You went forth. Why did you do all of this, Lord? For the salvation of your people, those who are waiting, those who are groaning, those who are sighing, those who are crying out, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, enough of this insanity. Yes, we know you're patient. We know you want as many to come to a saving knowledge of you as possible. But by the same token, we know that you're as grieved as we are. And if we're grieved, you're a thousand times more grieved. When? How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood, etc., as the souls under the altar cry out? You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed ones. Ready? This is beautiful. You will strike the head of the house of evil and lay him open from thigh to neck. Pretty graphic, violent language, but it's talking ultimately about the Antichrist. But here's what's interesting, guys. Notice this. On one hand, you have the classic messianic prophecies of the crushing one, the human born. And then over here, you have Moses talking about Yahweh, God Almighty, coming from heaven in radiant glory to save his people. Seemingly two different pictures. Here, Habakkuk is using all the same language as Moses, talking about Yahweh coming from heaven in the form of a man, in anthropomorphic form, marching, lightning shooting out of his hands. It says, you march through the earth, lightning shooting out of your hands. And then it uses the language of crushing the head of evil. It uses Genesis 3.15, the crushing one language. What Habakkuk does is he intertwines these two prophetic threads to all of a sudden it becomes very clear the human-born crushing one, the seed of Eve, Abraham, Judah, and David, is also at some certain point going to come back from heaven in glory with all of his angels shining like the sun and taking over the earth. The idea that this two comings of the Lord is some unique novel Christian New Testament doctrine, nonsense. It is thoroughly taught throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Go to the next slide. Oh, okay. So I didn't cite this earlier. So here's a a beautiful one, and it's a clear passage about the end times because the context When you read it, the full context is, Behold, the day is coming, it's burning like a furnace, all the wicked will be consumed. And then it says this, But for you who fear my name, okay, the wicked are going to be consumed, they're going to become like chaff, like ashes. But for the righteous, the difference between the righteous and the wicked are the wicked will be destroyed, the righteous are those who wait. 
We are defined throughout the scriptures as those who wait, those who hope. And that when it says those who wait on the Lord, the word there in the Hebrew has the connotation of those who hope in the Lord. It's not just, just waiting in your prayer closet, though that's valid. It's the ultimate waiting for him to come back. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, there it is again. It refers to his coming in the language of the son. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings in its wings, and then we will go forth and skip like a bunch of baby cows, right? Like, I love that picture, like a bunch of baby goats, you know? Hey, look at that fella. You know what I'm saying? When they're just, woohoo. So out of the season of grief and groaning and sighing and darkness, always darkest just before the dawn, we are portrayed as suddenly skipping like a bunch of calves. It's beautiful. And then it says this, you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I'm preparing, says the Lord. That language of us partnering with the, the one who judges and makes war, of treading our... That's like language throughout the biblical testimony. And, and, and here's what I want to say. Is just like Habakkuk, we look at the earth, we look at the politicians, I don't care, like, again, the vast majority on both sides... We look at the trending. We look at everything. And there's just, if you have any conscience at all, there's just a groaning, a grief. If we're paying attention. But there's something holy in rejoicing in saying the day when the wicked. I don't just mean to highlight politicians. But there's a lot of things that we could talk about that are incredibly unjust. The wicked will cease to be. They will be ashes and we will inherit the administration of the earth, the meek, the lonely, the, the, those that are crying out, those that are waiting. It's actually a beautiful picture. Next slide. So Habakkuk ends. He goes, I heard and my inward parts trembled. My lips quivered. Decay enters my bones. He goes, because it could be thousands of years until that beautiful picture that I saw of Jesus is fulfilled. And I have to wait patiently. Like, he's like grieving. Go to the next slide. He's saying, I have to wait for the judgment to come on the wicked. Like, that's a hard thing. And then he says, it's, it's very Eeyore, you know. Though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines. It's so poetic. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have brought Winnie the Pooh into this. But though the yield of the olive should fail, though the fields produce no fruit, everything circumstantially looks bleak. The, the, the flock should be cut off. There's no cattle. Nevertheless, I have just seen the end of the story or the beginning of the story. I've seen where it's all going. I have seen the coming of the king. And he says, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hind's feet. He makes me walk on the high places for the choir director on stringed instruments. So the beauty of this is that it's written in the form of a psalm. And this is complete speculation. But picture when the Jewish exiles were in Babylon, if they didn't have a synagogue, what they would do is they would meet by the rivers at the center of town. So I picture these young men. I picture men like Daniel, men like Ezekiel, the exiles, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Their nation has been destroyed. They saw it the destruction of their nation. They're now captives in Babylon and they would gather together and they would sing Habakkuk 3. 
together they would encourage one another and they would sing and they would meditate upon and they would think about this glorious, beautiful picture of the divine, righteous, and just judge who comes back to save the meek, the poor, the needy, the yearning, the groaning, the sighing, those who wait, and to execute vengeance against the wicked. And they encouraged themselves in that. And they, like Habakkuk, said, the Lord is my strength. Even though everything in the natural and the circumstantial looks horrible, I will rejoice in the Lord. Amen? Let's all stand. Father, we need a vision. We need a revelation of your coming. We need to be firmly, our hopes, the meditations of our hearts need to be firmly fixed on your coming on the deliverance, on the redemption. This is what you came for. We thank you for your presence with us now, but we yearn for it to be here physically. We'll hear the sounds of Jerusalem, the choirs singing and worshiping to smell the fragrance of the grilled meats (laughs) wafting around the vicinity of the temple. And Lord, we ask that you would burn the vision that Habakkuk had into our hearts that we would be people who would, who would run on the high places in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the decay. We would continue to cry out, yes, for revival, but ultimately to fix our eyes on the ultimate pinnacle of hope and yearning and expectation that all of creation is groaning for. And so, Lord, we ask that you would burn that into our hearts today. We thank you for these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Give Joel a hand, would you? Just... I tell you, let me encourage you guys to continue. If you want to really continue what understanding what Joel is just giving you a taste of today, you know, go to Amazon.com and order some of his books, really seriously, and read. He's done just an excellent job of laying all this out great detail, and it will so encourage you and so inspire you. Now, before I dismiss you, if you need prayer for anything, we'll have some leaders down front to pray for you. I would love to meet you if this is your first time over in this welcome corner. And Joel, you can kind of hang around up in front, can't you? And if you'd like to come and meet Joel, come on up. Let's just close in prayer. Father, thank you for this word. We long for your return, Jesus. And we do say with all of our heart, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. You're dismissed. God bless you.